I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. Welcome, everyone, to the Playing Footsie podcast. I'm Steve W, and this week it's just me and Steve D. Uh, Paul's away. He's having what we assume is a kind of well-earned break, but uh, maybe he's just putting his feet up for a bit, and who can blame him? The weather's nice, but it means it's just the two of us. Uh, This is all very exciting, though. How are you, Steve? How's your week been? Yeah, yeah, I've had a really good week. Thanks, Steve. Um, I think it's uh, it's been a bit of a quiet one. I've been working from home all week this week, which is unusual. Normally, I've got a couple of days in the office, but it's it's nice to be in the new home and still checking out, still going into the wrong room, expecting it to be the lounge and it not, but I'm sure I'll get there in the end. Uh, how's your week been? Yeah, congratulations on your move. Uh, it's been a good week, actually. It's been a week where I haven't looked at my portfolio very much. The portfolio's done quite well, actually, with me not looking at it. Uh, it's been a busy week uh, work. It's sort of end of term, end of academic year, so we're all busy marking exams and everything's pretty frantic. But uh, apart from that, it's been pretty fun uh, this week. It reminds me of the kind of Buffett thought that after you buy stocks, they don't really care what you paid for them. They're not going to do anything yeah, yeah, if you look at them. Uh, you, they're going to do what they're going to do. And if you sit there staring at your screen for eight hours a day versus if you just go outside, then nothing different happens. You come back and it's basically the same. That's a lynch thing, isn't it? Stocks don't know you earn them. Stocks don't know you earn them. Stocks don't have a memory. Stocks don't care what you paid for them either. Hmm. Stocks don't care if they were lent out. <laughs> Stocks don't care if they're lent out. They don't even know. We'll come back to that in a second, though. Uh, so we're recording this on June the 30th while Paul is away, which means that we're at the halfway point in the year. It's the end of Q2. It's the day that uh, all of the big dogs in investing and indeed in trading, I guess, We'll be filing their 13Fs and we'll be finding out in about six weeks or so, I think, what they own as of today, what they've been buying, what they've been selling. So I guess it's a decent time, we were thinking, just to have a nice little look back at the quarter and maybe the half year and how that's been. How's it been for you, Steve? Yeah, so I've had a pretty uh, a pretty stellar um, last quarter for me. So you'll remember the quarter before was the sort of tech and growth crash, which hit me pretty hard. I basically lost um about 45 percent of my gains um so i was up in sort of 65 percent and i was ended up around 20 percent gains um but i've pretty much uh well i've done a pretty decent sized dilution as well so it's impossible to know um, without actually working out the maths but i'm back up with about sort of 30 percent of my live performance um i've done nothing other than sit down and watch uh essentially i've added two stocks um of, of no anywhere and that was um google and um did i add another one actually well i added a bit of synopsis today which is which is what i was angling at but it's not a substantial position how about you what have you done this quarter what counts as a substantial position for you i thought you had maybe a bit of a nibble at deer at one point yeah, I, well, I did nibble at Deer and then I sold it because it ran up immediately. And the same thing, I've actually sold Mercado Libra as well. That that ran up about 25% in the two weeks I owned it. So I cut them both off and I actually bought um, enough Google for it to just slip into the third biggest position in my portfolio now. So it's a fairly big, fairly big addition. 
That is, I've seen the size of your portfolio. That's that's a serious bit of buying. Uh, so it's interesting then. I mean, I was thinking that when we look at 13Fs, I look at the stuff that, that's gone down, the stuff that's gone up in terms of amount uh, that the person owns or the organization. And I sort of think that's kind of all they've done in like three months. They've bought a bit more of this. They've sold out of that thing. Uh, and that's more or less it. But I mean, if we looked at your sort of 13F from quarter to quarter, there'd be a lot of what you've done that hasn't shown up on there, basically. You wouldn't just you just wouldn't see Deer on there at all. You wouldn't see Mercado Libra on there. We would just see a, a nice little couple of changes and we'd all look and think, see, that's really good discipline, that from Steve. He doesn't just stand there clicking the mouse button all day buying stuff. Yeah, um, I'm as ill-disciplined as everybody else, I think. <laughs> is that It's just uh, sometimes the edge to play is just too high and I think my biggest issue as an investor and, and, and feel free to chime in on this is cash burns a hole in my account pocket i if i can i can't i try to sit there with 10 percent. i plan to sit there with 10 percent, but then it becomes eight and then i think well five is enough and then then you think oh well we're down to five i'm supposed to have 10 so i might as well have none and I just can't seem to get a grip on that at the moment. How about you with cash? Cash doesn't burn a hole in my account in the same way, but I have a related problem. So here's the issue for me. And I don't tend to have a problem with cash because I can usually find something attractive to buy, by which I mean I can find something that I bought before and it's gone down uh, because it's called Kirkland Lake, basically. So cash doesn't really yeah. burn a hole in my account so much as Kirkland Lake stocks burn a hole in my account because I just buy them and then they go a bit lower. And then I effectively lose all the cash. I'm currently sitting on a little bit, actually, uh, or by my standards anyway. Uh, so I'm, I'm still looking for somewhere to put that. I've had a, my 13F would look busier than yours, although I'm not sure I've actually been busier than you uh, this quarter. So I sold out of my position in Sempra Energy, which is a utility based in Southern California. Uh, and I've added some money as well. And I've added some... Verizon, some Bank of New York Mellon, some Landstar, some Sirius XM, and a very, very small nibble at NVR, the house builder, which I thought I'll just it just ease into this position. It's currently up seven percent, so that might be as far as that goes for me for the time being. But my my thirteen F would look busier, and I made a point of actually just writing mine down at the end of the last quarter and writing them down now. I don't think that's all I've bought and sold. In fact I'm pretty sure it's not all I've bought and sold, but things would look quite similar on my or quite different sorry on my one so i've got two buffett stocks and three stocks that indicate that i'm capable of thinking for myself at least sometimes anyway <laughs> yeah. bit of autonomy see i always have the problem with um i saw in my head i've always got the the famous david gardner quote of only dips wait for dips and um you know he is the ultimate bull market investor and in your head you look at you look at the prices of something like google and you think i think me and you both originally bought it about 1100 and i think we both got out about 1600 because we thought that that had run up quite a lot in a short period of time and there was quite a lot of me market turmoil at the time but what happened with google is is that rather than its business suffer as 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 digital advertising drew away from uh, well we, we thought market spend was going to go down people were working from home digital spend would, would likely go down what actually happened was digital advertising got all of the spend people stopped advertising on tv they stopped advertising on something where they can't actually track the metric and google ended up getting all of the business so it was a really poor move for a long-term investor to sell out of google and I, I sort of sat there watching it at 2200 and then at 2100 and thinking it'll come down a bit more than this and then it's at 2400 and you think uh, there's got to be a point where you've got to pull the trigger on a business like google which is to say probably one of the highest i would probably say it is the highest quality business in in america at the moment it's my favorite business um and i'm gonna hold it this time and i'm gonna hold it 
forever. Excellent. So uh, one thing I point out to anyone listening on this one, Google and um, that kind of thing are not on our list of things to talk about this week. So we normally have a list of things we're going to run down. But Paul's not here to tell us not to. So we're going to talk about whatever the hell we like. It feels very much like Dad's gone away and he's left us with the house. And we're going to try not to trash it or burn it down too much while he's here. But he's, you're dead right about Google. We did own it for a time uh, between us, or individually rather. Uh, and we sold it around the time that there was some noise being made about antitrust issues. And I decided I'd had enough of that and didn't have the stomach for that. That's proved to be a bad error on my part. So I take your point about Google being one of the... Well, actually, it wasn't your point that it's one of the best companies around. You said it was the best, which is a uh, big mm. claim. Might be right, but big claim. Um, it turns out uh, what we've learned this quarter, I think, is that when companies aren't fearing for their lives because they're worried about going out of business, they're actually all right with spending their money on digital advertising. Who knew? And uh, when they think they are terrified mm. and that they might go bust tomorrow, they tend to wind in the advertising spend. So it actually makes Google something of a kind of reopening stock or a reopening beneficiary, even though you look at it and think it's all online. It doesn't matter that everyone's in their house. Uh, they don't need any kind of uh, things that would be COVID affected. It's kind of what you think about. If you were sat in the marketing chair, um, you know, say, say Lululemon, um, would you really bang your adverts on TV? You, you don't actually know if they're getting to, getting to the people you you want them to get in front of. You you don't know if they're actually watching the advert. I mean, you don't know if when the adverts come on, like most people do, pop up and go and make a cup of tea. Um, is anybody actually seeing it with with YouTube or with advertising on? even facebook and things like that at least you have a good idea of where the eyes are and what they're looking at and you can sort of respond to that i i honestly struggle to see why you would and tv is bloody expensive to advertise on i just don't see how other than brand recognition because i think there's a prestige to advertising on tv i think i don't think that will ever leave there's Advertising on TV tells other people we're big enough to advertise on TV. There's a certain level of trust in that because it costs so much. But outside of that, I just I just can't see a future where Google is any trouble. And then if somebody says to me, well, somebody's going to break them up. Well, that's great. I would love to hold YouTube on its own. It's an absolutely incredible business. If they broke up Android, I'd love to hold Android. It's an incredible business. Google is just a conglomerate of incredible businesses. And that's why it's one of the biggest holdings in my portfolio. That's a great point and one that I've tended to overlook quite badly here. So when I think of Google and I compare it to other conglomerates, even say Amazon or Berkshire Hathaway or something like that, I tend to think of Google as a really brilliant search engine business. I mean, it's unusual in that it's big cash machine is the thing that you know it for, uh, which is search engines and stuff. But then I just sort of think of it as a bunch of moonshots about uh, some space stuff and some autonomous driving stuff. And I sort of think, I've got no idea how to evaluate these kind of things. But you're dead right. I mean, there's plenty of other good stuff in there. Android's great. Android's, um, I think, got a bigger market share than uh, certainly most in the smartphone area. Um, I was going to say bigger than Apple, but I'm not sure about that, so I won't say that because I'm not going to hurl things around and have people write in the comments afterwards. That, and, that would be a very poor thing Yeah, to tell do. me I'm wrong. So I'm <laughs> going to tread carefully around that idea. But clearly Android is a great phone uh, business. YouTube is a fantastic business. Are you saying you prefer them broken up out of interest? Um, I actually don't mind the idea of breaking things up. It's, I'm not against it 
at all. I think these companies, they're thriving under Google's banner, but I think they'll thrive just as well um, when they when they become individual businesses and they have a, a CEO that is dedicated to progressing that business. It's the same, I feel the same way about Amazon, is that I think Amazon is a fantastic business and, and it's something I absolutely want to hold in my portfolio. It's my number one holding. But I'm not frightened of them getting broken up because Amazon Logistics is a fantastic business. Um, AWS is a fantastic business. Amazon.com, I'd sell it if it's split off. I, I don't hold Amazon for Amazon.com. I think that's probably a low margin business that I'm not particularly excited by. Um, AWS, Amazon Logistics. I mean, Logistics is a is is a is crushing the competition in 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 the US, and and it'll it'll only scale well everywhere. Um, yeah, I, I think that that is another thing to not be worried about. I like that thought. So Amazon's also my biggest um, holding in my portfolio. Fun fact, actually, last time we checked, uh, I think we own the same amount of Amazon in terms of raw numbers of shares. It's just, I think, about 6% of your portfolio and about 12% of mine because my portfolio is half the size of your one. But you own two shares? Yeah, yeah, we own the same uh, yeah, amount yeah. in that case. I, some, I don't know. I have a slightly different view on Amazon, I think. I quite like the shopping business and I like the shopping business attached to the rest of the conglomerate because the way i think about amazon as a conglomerate i think i understand best uh, especially of the fangs that i understand best i associate it as a company that basically generates money using aws and pretty much prints money using aws and then cheats at loads of other industries uh, so it cheats at online retailing by uh, basically running at no money and just waiting until all the competition has gone away because it can't compete on that because it doesn't have a big aws thing behind it uh, probably cheats at whatever Deliveroo is trying to do and then we won't worry about that one too much uh, but cheats in various other kind of areas and that only really works if those things stay together as you say if you kind of kick them out of uh, the conglomerate there I worry the shop wouldn't do so well by itself unless the damage has already been done to the competitors by having so long of running at little or no margin not making money reinvesting and uh, just working on the moat uh, basically so that's where I kind of find this interesting. I quite like them together. I don't really want them uh, spun out. I like having a, a machine that can do that, basically. Yeah, and that's the bad thing, though, isn't it? That when when um, when they talk about breaking up Amazon to get more competition, they're not talking about the logistics side. They're not talking about the um, the AWS side. They're talking about the way that the shop cannibalizes sales for everybody else. And it's, it's quite prepared to take in sales and deliver them the next day at a loss just so that your revenue doesn't go to somebody else. And that that's not fair. Um, but you've also got to look at it from an in investor standpoint in that if you're looking at AWS on its own, is a far better business than AWS with some of its profits being funneled in to, um, to pay for amazon.com i think aws on its own is a trillion dollar business i think amazon logistics on its own is probably a half a trillion dollar business because of its scale amazon.com is probably a pretty decent sized business but i reckon its gross margins will be under 10 and if you split it off amazon logistics will probably charge it a hell of a lot more than <laughs> than it currently is doing as well to uh, to deliver things so yeah it's a business that i'm not that excited about and i actually think that's a business with with a lot of problems really and i think a lot of problems from a, especially from a, a regulation standpoint 
Um, AWS logistics. Yeah, you touched on the regulation thing. The regulation thing is one I find really interesting. Uh, Again, having all these conversations that we're not supposed to have because they're not on our list of things, but Paul stops us saying this stuff usually. So the regulation stuff um, I find interesting. So the regulation is usually understood in terms of harm to consumer, I think. Um, Do you care if there's more than one web shop or do you just care about how cheap the web shop is? No, that's the idea, isn't it? I think the same. This you see the same when you see the Amazon clones pop up. The idea that these companies don't go out of their way to do what they've done. They do it because they're so good at what they do. Um, I think one of the things that springs to mind is Coupang's mission statement: is they want to, they they dream of a world where the consumer says, "How did we ever live without Coupang?" And in my head, that's very similar to what Amazon's message is. And they've won by being more customer-centric than everybody, being brilliant, brilliant at um, optimizing the business and getting items out to you, and geographically really sensible when it comes to building their fulfillment centers. So Amazon hasn't won by cheating. That's 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 difficult to say amazon has won by being far better than the competition in every regard so the issue of breaking them up for competition is i guess i can see why we would do it but you can't accuse them of you can't accuse them of like malpractice they're doing it now but they didn't do it at the beginning they beat everybody out by being better so it's tough i can see both sides of the arguments i just think amazon's a better business split up you might be right about that. I mean, when I think about kind of being consumer focused and that kind of thing with my consumer hat on, I really don't care if there's not more than one web shop. I really don't care if Amazon is the only shopping place on the internet. Yeah. I, I care about them not becoming getting monopolistic power, shoving prices up with my consumer hat on. I care about that yeah. a lot. Uh, so if that starts happening, then I start getting concerned. But I really don't care about the existence of other places that I'm not going to shop just so I can go and look at other places or buy it from somewhere that's not Amazon. I don't have the kind of moral hang-up over Amazon that quite a few people do. The more obvious example is to me is Facebook, for what it's worth. I really don't care if there's only one social media website in the world because all the others go bust. It is probably a bad thing about me that I look at more than one in a day. I feel like this is just multiplying my unproductive time. And, you know, I should be grown up enough to not do that particularly, but... I really don't care about the existence of multiple social media uh, platforms, at least not ones that all appear to do roughly the same thing. So I'm not particularly interested in anyone regulating Facebook because they become a monopoly or something like that. I can have it as far as I'm concerned. I care about whether that product becomes worse for me as a customer or something like that. I care about that a lot. But um, in terms of monopolistic power, it's kind of hard to care, I think, with a consumer hat on. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where if you're not going to break them up, then just... just keep an eye on them regulate them better make sure they don't go silly you know make sure prices aren't getting wildly inflated and and then you know i think it's it's quite it's, it's almost a token gesture isn't it it's it's basically they've kind of whipped up this the politicians have whipped up this storm about you know billionaires being evil and what have you and bezos is kind of like um he's kind of like number one on the hit list isn't he so it's very easy to sort of politically point score i guess into um you know, breaking Amazon up would be like, hey, look, we 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 did that thing. We showed those showed those nasty people when, when really, I don't reckon the vast majority of people actually care. It's it is just a vote winning system. I think I think I'm yeah, I'm with you there. If Amazon is so good, I want to use it for pretty much everything. 
and so long as they continue to be good and continue to be fair with the price and I I honestly don't care as well I think just let them do whatever they do yeah I think that's probably where I come down as well okay uh, we should probably talk about something that we've actually scheduled to talk about here a little bit but <laughs> in the news this week um, is UK, uh, US banks so the Fed stress test results have come out recently and it's been very good for the major US banks. They've, uh, since the kind of pandemic began, really been forced to hold reserves uh, in order to cover default prospects and that kind of thing, which uh, suppresses their earnings power, basically. Money you're holding in reserve is money you can't lend out, which you can't then gain interest on like that by way of uh, ordinary banking activities. So most of the big banks have been relying on trading revenues and the chance to lend out some more money or distribute it um, has been one that they've been missing and it looks like it's coming for them now. Interesting moves coming out of some of these um, banks from what I can see of it. Anything catch your eye on this, Steve? Yeah, so, um, well, there was loads of quite surprising ones. It was it was quite funny, really. The stress tests all get revealed and all the banks together, like they're not in some kind of weird conglomerate or they're not in some kind of WhatsApp chat group. All of them all, all decide to release their new dividend data like within seconds of each other. And there was like hikes, there was massive hikes, there was doubling of dividends. I mean, it is a it is a good time to be a, a dividend investor in um, in US financials. I think some of those yields are looking a hell of a lot more healthy today than they were uh, than they were yesterday, certainly. But there are a few banks as well that haven't done anything with the dividend, and and you just wonder. There is quite a lot of yield chasing and dividend investing. I know people say they don't do it, but it's very a very easy thing to do. I wonder if some of those banks are going to get left behind because of their dividend and become a lot more attractive. I'm thinking Citibank in particular here. I thought Citi was fascinating. So just to run through a few on this, um, Wells Fargo, uh, which has had its share of battles for quite a while now, by the way, has uh, doubled its dividend. It was yielding 0.89, which is unlikely to attract much by way of dividend investing unless you're prepared to kind of ride that storm out, which people might well be with Wells. I've heard it said a lot that once they get through the, uh, the night that they're in here, things will look a lot better for them and they've got a lot of upside. Uh, Morgan Stanley also doubled their dividend. Their, their dividend, I think, was around 1.54%, which will push them up towards three, which moves them into kind of what I assume to be interesting territory uh, for a kind of dividend investor, mm. if only we had one of those on this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, there are other sort of more modest moves elsewhere. JP Morgan have pushed by 10%. They were yielding around 2.3% uh, last time I looked. Um, and Bank of America pushed by one uh, 17%. And they were at a 1.76% yield. Uh, City, as you pointed out, have kept theirs still. Um, I think this is a really interesting move, and I really, really like this move uh, from City. They've basically been given their money and said, look, here you are, this is released to you, uh, do what you will with it. And they've decided they're going to use it all on buybacks, where some of the others had been looking to raise their dividend. And I like this for a few reasons. Uh, number one, they're currently trading below their book value. So Bank of America's not, JP Morgan's not, Morgan Stanley's not, Wells Fargo's not. Um, but Citi are only trading at 0.8% of their... 0.8%? Uh, 0.8% um, of their... is their price-to-book ratio, basically. So they're trading at 80% of book. And when you do buybacks at a level below your book value, you drive up your book value, basically. So here's a quick thing that I learned from reading Sven Carlin's book on modern value investing. If you're doing buybacks and you 
buyback at above one price to book, uh, your book value goes down. If you do buybacks and your you buy back below um, your uh, a number one price to book, your book value goes up. If you do it at one, it stays where it is basically. So when we look at companies like Apple doing buybacks, um, they're trading at massive ma- time book value. They don't really care about that fact, uh, and they don't really care about their book value very much. They're attempting to become uh, net cash neutral, I think. So they're happy with their book value going down. But if you're a bank and you care a lot about your kind of book value because your book value is what you plan on using to go and distribute loans to people, doing buybacks like City are uh, with a 0.8 price to book, uh, I like this move a lot for what it's worth. Plus, their dividend's already at about 2.9%. It's just short of 3%. That's good dividend, yeah. Higher than the others by quite some way. They're only on about 11 times earnings. Some of the others are on 17 and 15 and so on. I, if I was City, I would be buying back hard at the moment. And, of course, if the more you buy back, um, they're keeping their dividend flat, by the way, at 51 cents a share, I think, yeah. quarterly. Uh, that means they've, of course, got to pay out less by dividends if they recover some of these shares because it's however many lots of 51 cents less they've got to pay. I really like this move from City. And City is pretty much the only bank in the US. It's not the only bank in the US. It's one of the few major banks that I don't own. Uh, and I'm wondering what I think about that. Yes, yeah, so I used to own um, City. That was one of that was the first bank I moved into. But when when we hit the um, when we hit the coronavirus crisis, City had a lot of consumer debt. They had a lot of credit card debt on their books. They had a lot of personal loans on their books. So they, that was a real problem at the time um, because we were worried that basically the consumer was going to get hit the worst. We knew that the um, the, the businesses were going to get supported. The Fed came out straight away and said businesses were going to get supported. But it took quite a while for paycheck relief uh, in the US. And that meant... That, I mean, there was a moratorium on debt, wasn't there, at one point? I think moratorium... Is moratorium the right word? Um, but yeah, so we, we assumed that that would come eventually. But it didn't. And then there was a little like two to three month gap where you thought, oh God, this is awful. You have to help them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? These people not working and... There's all this, all this debt, and then the, I remember all the, um, the um, eviction, all the eviction um, thingies. They all they ran out as well, so people could start getting evicted again. And I, I just got a little bit shook on City, and I thought, I moved from City into JPM, which was a, which was in hindsight was a very, very good move. Um, but City again looks really, really interesting. They've got a new CEO. It's all getting refreshed there, and they're all doing the, the making the right noises. It looks like. It's going to be added to that list of very, very well-run banks in the US. Yeah, I like this a lot. So their new CEO is Jane Fraser, um, who this is one of the few CEOs that I can name, by the way. So if Steve, at some point in the future, uh, listeners and viewers, comes up with a game that involves trying to name the CEOs of various companies, I've got this one. I've got Berkshire Hathaway. And that's pretty much it. That was the question. That was the question in the quiz. If Paul was here, that was going to be the question in this week's quiz. So it's getting changed now. Okay. <laughs> uh, but yeah, cities are, I think, really interesting here. I'm actually spread out, in my case, across quite a few banks because I struggle to differentiate one from the other. I mean, here's the basic way that I try and evaluate these for what it's worth. I try and work out what multiple of book value you have to pay for them and what their return on equity is going to be. So how many times book am I going to have to pay and what return on book are you going to give me? And that's basically it. And that gives you a function for working these things out in terms of which ones are relatively better than other ones. 
And that's about as sophisticated as I go on these kind of things. But any of these look attractive to you, Steve? Um, at the moment, there's none on the list that I'm actually buying. I think the vast majority of the US banks are um, pretty overvalued now. I think they're all approaching the sort of top end of their valuation. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they go from here. But banks' revenue and income growth tends to be pretty predictable. Um, and all of these are looking like they're just a little bit top heavy for me at the moment. City is one I would be interested in, but I do worry again with all of their consumer debt, car loan debt, etc. If we go into uh, an area where interest rates go up, debt could become a little bit um, less affordable. So there is um, there is that. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sort of umming and iron around that. I actually own Canadian banks. Canadian banks are my uh, sort of my area at the moment and i really like royal bank of canada at the moment i think that's still pretty undervalued um i like toronto dominion i think that's a, a very good bank but i've actually i actually own bank of nova scotia that's uh, one of my core holdings it's got a really really good dividend i think it's about it's over six percent at the moment i think is bank of nova scotia's dividend um it's a very very well-run bank it's a tech um a tech-led bank so they really have worked hard on their tech stack. And it's also, they, they like to call themselves Canada's World Bank, but they only actually operate in a couple of countries in South America and, and, and in the Caribbean, from what I can see. So I don't know, they, they have a sort of a very American definition of the world. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, it's, um, it is a very, very good bank. I think, well, I, I couldn't, to be honest, I couldn't name, I don't think any of the, the major Canadian banks are bad buyers at the moment. I like that. I like that a lot. So the idea of Canada's World Bank existing in about three countries, it sounds a little bit to me like the kind of Buffett diversified retail, which only had one store, uh, from what I can think yeah. of it. That's how diversified <laughs> it was. 6% is really interesting uh, for a dividend. I mean, it's got to be interesting in the current low rates environment for uh, uh, someone looking for yield in particular. Let's not say all dividend mm. investors are looking for yield, but I'm looking at Bank of America with its 1.7% dividend. I do own this, but I don't own it anywhere near the kind of rates that I was getting it at the moment. I calculated after the hike, I would be getting up to closer to a 3% yield or something like that. So, I mean, I, it feels to me like it feels to you, I think, that a lot of this good news for the banks has been priced in already. It's been expected by various bits of what is undeniably good news for banks. And I guess this sort of speaks to a general thought that I have here, which is that on the retail side of things, which we are, Often by the time we get the news, it's kind of too late, right? Uh, yeah. So by the time we hear about this kind of thing, that's priced in, that's done. I get the impression that our buying now is just giving SmartUd money a chance to unwind itself again because they bought it a quarter ago, six months ago, further ahead than that. They were able to see through that a little bit and think, look, good news is going to come. I'll just wait till it comes and let everyone jump on it after the news. Yeah, I've got a bank that we you might like the idea. I've got two really that you might like the idea of um, that aren't too far ahead of themselves and are quite small banks. So there's Ameris Bancorp in uh, America. They're a, they're a small um, sort of community bank, but they're they're really really good and they're so good that the regulator likes to uh, basically ring them up and say we have X struggling bank in X small town slash city in america could you uh, would you be interested in taking them over and improving them now ameris has its faults as well and if you if you go look through its uh, its uh, history it has a bit of a checkered past but it is a very interesting little bank 
Um, the other bank I'll throw at you is uh, Silvergate Bank or Silvergate Capital. Uh, they're a very different kind of bank. They're a little mortgage lender um, that have been profitable for, I think it's 20 years now. They were profitable all the way through 2008, which for a mortgage lender is quite important. Um, it's quite interesting, I think. Um, what they also do on the side business is they are the, pretty much the cogs behind the whole crypto network. So they provide what's called the Silvergate Exchange Network, and it's a way of converting crypto uh, into dollars 24-7, no, no delay on settlement. And it's a really interesting, um, quick way for, and, and they have every major crypto exchange. I mean, your Coinbase's, your Kraken's, your Gemini's, every single crypto exchange uses Silvergate. Um, there is no alternative at the moment. There is, there is none of the banks are doing this. And if you want to look at somebody's um, assets absolutely flying through the roof, that is Silvergate. The issue with it is, is that they're only about a billion in market cap. So when their assets were getting to like eight or nine billion, they were like having to raise money desperately just to reach their capital um, liquidity ratio. So they've, they've diluted quite a bit. Uh, but they are a really interesting little bank with, um, and they must be, they must be, if if Bitcoin and, and altcoins and Ethereum, what have you, gets any more mainstream, they must be acquisition target um, sort of 101. I would say the JP Morgan is the sort of bank that would look at something like that and go, yeah, we'll have some of that. That We'll have that for, for a couple of billion. You would build that into, say, your Bitcoin ETF then, if you were looking to make a kind of diversified <laughs> bet on crypto or something. Well, Kathy already owns it. I think it's in her special Magic FinTech, Magic FinTech ETF. Yeah. Um, oh, it was for a certain period of time. Um, she does like to buy and sell quite rapidly, so it's very difficult to keep up to date. But I'm certain for quite a length of time it was in there. She does. She does what's what she describes as trading around volatility, which is perfectly fair strategy, and it's very similar to what you and I were describing with our kind of activities of this uh, last quarter or so of look I'm going to buy something if I think it's attractively priced but then if it runs off I'm not hanging on to it uh, I don't particularly want to own it at those yeah. things and if someone wants to sell it back to me again at a lower price alright I'll have it back then as well uh, I'm perfectly happy with the idea that the market might throw us opportunities sort of fairly regularly to buy them and sell them uh, we don't have to do that at any point but there's nothing kind of intrinsically wrong with it this is one of the rare occasions of me sticking up for Kathy Wood uh, I like it but yeah a couple of interesting sort of banks there I bought Bank of New York Mellon which is far less interesting but it's basically where uh, corporations go to deposit all this cash that they apparently have on their books uh, in one way or another and I got to that largely through my now uh, previously mentioned price to book versus returns on equity uh, formula which came out quite well we'll see how we go on those okay um Let's talk about trading 212 a little bit. You hinted at uh, some share lending stuff earlier, Steve. Um, what's been going on there? Yeah, so the subreddit's been going absolute bananas about this because I think people really do misunderstand what the whole purpose of share lending is. Um, just to clarify for people who, who aren't sure, share lending isn't new. This isn't a new concept that trading to one have dreamt up as a way to steal extra money from your account. Uh, or to steal your shares off you, or to to give hedges a chance to cover it was something I've read quite a, a few times today. Um, share lending is basically facilitating options trading either way. That's that's all it real realistically does. 
Um, and basically what trading to a two and two are saying to you is that they will lend shares only from your invest account because you can't do it from an ISA and in return for that they will reduce your commissions which is the same thing that Digero do they they reduce your commissions if you go in with share lending and just to sort of say Vanguard iShares they all do share lending from their ETF so this isn't something that you know an evil corporation is doing this is just run of the mill brokerage stuff so I think people are getting really a little just going a little bit over the top about it and I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as people think it is. In fact I think it's a very fair trade, I would probably describe it. The the one thing the one thing I did want to touch upon is that the terms and conditions that you got recently emailed to you are not this isn't the introduction of share lending. Share lending was introduced fourteen months ago. You've been doing it for fourteen months and you haven't noticed anything. So the new terms and conditions are actually of net benefit to the customer if you read them because trading two and two are clarifying their relationship with you in the event that your share is lent so basically just quickly run down it um interactive brokers are giving 102 percent of the capital back in treasury bonds um that is getting recalculated every day so should your share run up the next day they will have to deposit more treasury bonds again to cover that deficit um and, and like I say, people are saying, well, what if my share goes missing? Well, th- this is an established program that's been, been running for ages. Shares don't tend to go missing. We're not in the day where you would post off your paper share to somebody and that would be the share lending. Nothing like that happens now. If you imagine the D- the DTCC, the, the clearing centres, are basically playing spin the bottle with shares. And wherever that wherever that share points is who owns that share essentially is how it works so all they're doing is temporarily spinning the bottle off you to somebody else who then you know plays options with your share at the end of the day it can be recalled whenever they want the dtcc just spins the bottle back to you which will be great when you need things like voting or when there's things like dividends because you know we'll be able to recall the share in time to vote on something or on time to receive a dividend so really it's not that big of a thing it's nothing to be particularly worried about, and none of it's actually new. So I guess I have three things here. One is uh, a minor point, where I wonder if this would be more popular if they called it playing spin the bottle with shares. Uh, people might be a bit more up for yes. that. <clears throat> um, the second is, uh, when I think about this kind of thing, I think, okay, I have thought, and I thought this during all the Robin Hood stuff where people were talking about market manipulation, I'm always aware of the idea that if something's free, there's probably a catch somewhere. Or at least, if I'm not giving them their money, someone's giving them their money, and someone is wanting something in exchange for that money that they're giving them, basically. I don't think trading two-on-two runs on fresh air or something. I take it it has to be a kind of revenue-producing machine, and it's not producing any revenues out of me. So I kind of get the impression that there's quite a bit that I'll put up with here for what is kind of an ad-free and I think reasonably effective uh, kind of platform. It is especially for investing. I don't know so much if you're a trader and your execution really matters to you that much how good it is on 212. Different people have different ideas here. But I guess one thing to think about then if you're a 212 user is what are you willing to put up with for a free service? Um, Because they need to make money somehow. Share lending is a way of doing that. The third question, I guess, is people seem to be very excited about what's happening to their dividends at the moment. Uh, They seem to be very excited about what's happening to the tax on their dividends. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's actually another um, 
basically falsity is that a manufactured dividend is is treated exactly the same as a standard dividend uh, for tax purposes so um, it actually doesn't make any difference whatsoever the share lending is something that is happening in the background where you will not notice any difference to your account whatsoever um, and that's the beauty of it I think is that an FX fee every time you load up an order you see that that is a hit in your pocket share lending is like a charge that you never see and you never feel and you never actually pay and that has got to be the best way of getting commission-free broken I, I was thinking about this earlier I was thinking how would you rather have it would you rather pay excessive fees like Hargreaves Lansdowne which is £12 a trade and an FX fee would you rather have been on free trade when all of a sudden your ISA became £3 and then to access some of the stocks it became £9.99 and then they introduced an FX fee as well would you rather have that or would you rather have it on Robinhood where they actually sell the trade data to to people who are directly betting against you I think of all of them I think Trading two and twos is the least harmful way of a company sustainably making revenue whilst keeping the service free for everybody, I would, I would say. And just to sort of combat, because the subreddit has been going wild with people saying, they also sell your trade data. That's actually illegal in the UK. And Trading Two and Two was a Bulgarian broker that moved to the UK for in, to, to exchange better regulation for more credibility so it's hard to say that they're going to come over here and start breaking laws and the second thing people always say is but they make money from the spread they don't make money from the spread because that is also illegal in the uk so they have to make money somehow and if you're worried about trading two on two going bust because you don't see any revenue well this is where the revenue comes from so you must feel better knowing that trading two on two are making some money because that makes I've had safe. vast amounts online of they make money from the spread uh, and I pointed out that's illegal and other people have said no it's not I think a good amount of what goes on in those discussions I don't have many of them if I'm honest I can't be bothered with many of them is that we sometimes talk at cross purposes between the CFD account and uh, investing or ISA based accounts so uh, spread betting is a different kind of thing to investing uh, and you want to keep your eye on what's going on in either of those separately. I tend to share your view um, that in this situation, that Trading212 is the best broker available to me. That's why I'm with them. Uh, I'm not particularly brand loyal to 212 or anything like that. If I thought there was a better option, I would move. Uh, I don't particularly see a better option, and that's kind of why I haven't. And it's as straightforward as that. Uh, and it's for anyone else to decide for themselves what they want here. Neither of us, I think, is in any way incentivized by trading 212 uh, in any particular way. So um, we're not particularly talking our books here. We do have what you would expect to see from two people who are fairly positive about trading 212, which is we have 212 accounts. But it's not the case that we're here to stick up for them or anything like that. It's very much the case that we form a view and we join them, not the other way around. Um, so that's worth kind of just keeping in mind, yeah. I guess. See, my, my point is that I, the reason I defend trading 2 and 2 a little bit on the subreddit is because what I hate more than anything is misinformation because there's a hell of a lot of misinformation on the subreddit and that creates a hell of a lot of fear in people. And the amount of people you see saying, oh, well, should I withdraw my money? Should I get my money out? And the answer is, well, no, because what you've been told is actually a lie. And they're not doing any of the things. And the vast majority of the posts on trading 2 and 2 over the last couple of days, I would say 95% of them had somebody hysterically lying and trying to cause fear 
and and it just wasn't true and 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 that's the thing that really gets on it really annoys me that i'm I'm not a fan of misinformation i'm not I'm, i've not been a fan of it during the sort of the, the late political era as well it's really really sort of wound me up so yeah it doesn't take much to get me you're not a fan of misinformation <laughs> oh i heard you were uh uh, I've seen a, I've seen a little bit of this on um, YouTube channels as well, and I think this takes an awful lot of either recklessness or courage, and I'm not sure what to, to build your YouTube channel and then try to out two one two with these kind of things and be wrong. Because if that were me, I would live in almost constant fear of a lawsuit coming my way um, if you are saying things that are not true in this kind of exactly, situation. Yeah. If other people want to do that, that's kind of up to them, I guess. But I, I would be very, very uh, trepid about doing this kind of thing if it were, if it were me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's pick up a theme that we carry. We started off last week a little bit. We were looking at um, David Gardner of Motley Fool. Um, well, I would like to say fame, but one of our points was that we didn't really think he'd got quite the fame that he deserved here in his latest kind of uh, five stock sampler. Yeah, true. Uh, we were. A couple of people asked us in the comments whether we would put together our own kind of five stock samplers and see how we go with some of those. Uh, we're game for this kind of thing. We're happy to have a, a run off against the great man and see how far we kind of finish behind him because I think we probably both think we will. Uh, but we thought this week we might talk you through our own kind of five stock samplers and just have a, a quick reminder of kind of what's going on with uh, this general idea. So, uh, Steve, do you have... David's five. I say David's five. Like I'm on first name terms with him. Uh, da- David, yeah. do you have Big Dave's David. five? We've <laughs> got the five David sent yeah. What's in his sample? <laughs> um, so yeah. So just just so everybody knows, I'm I'm going to create pies for all three of these, and we'll make them all shareable, um, so you can see, um, you know, what 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 we've picked and how they're all doing against each other. So. Um, but yeah, I've, I've made one. I've called it DG Sampler for David Gardner Sampler. And his picks were, in alphabetical order, Axon Enterprise. Um, oh, no. Now they're not in alphabetical order. I've got to quickly work I think Zillow alphabet. comes last, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I've got that. Um, yep. Peloton Interactive, the uh, clothes hanging company. Um, the Trade Desk. Uh, Unity Software. And Zillow Group. So that's David's. Um, and again, that's under DG Sampler if you wanted to search for it, if for any reason you wanted to, to follow it. Um, what have you got, Steve, in yours? Can you remember? Perfectly sensible um, thing you might want to follow there. Yeah, so I'll tell you the top one of mine. I have organised mine into alphabetical order. I have a company called Aspen Tech uh, first in mine. It's... Um, an industrials company and what they do is provide uh, software in particular to optimize um, process intensive uh, warehouses, factories, those kinds of things. There's a lot in oil and refinery at the moment and for companies that have enormous great manufacturing outputs and relatively low margins, what they find is that look, any small economies you can make have a large, large impact over the, the longer term. Aspen Tech, I think, are pretty much the best at what they do here. This is, of course, a rule breaker inspired um, sort of uh, exercise for us. I thought I would break one of my rules here, and this is a stock that I've been looking at for my own uh, portfolio. I don't own this. I don't own any of these five, actually. So this is more for interest than anything else for me. This one's just a little higher priced than I thought it might be. 
Um, so I would generally be breaking a rule here in terms of just paying more than I thought I wanted to. But Aspen Tech is my first one. So my first one is probably obvious after what I've said there earlier today. My first stock that I think will, well, the idea is that we will beat the market, I guess. So my first stock that I think will beat the market is Alphabet, as in Google. Um, I think I've said all I really need to say about it. I think it's a fantastic business. I went for the Class C because I couldn't remember what the difference between the Class A and the Class C was at the time of putting it in. But I believe the Class C is the non-voting version of the share. Um, the Class A version currently has about, I think if I remember rightly, it has about a $40 premium over the top of it. It's not its not as much as it normally is. It, not, it used to be $100, $150. But I've gone for the Class C version. Um, again, I think it's a, a dead obvious start. Um, what have you got in number two? Just a quick question, Steve. What do you own in your um, 212 actual portfolio, the C or the A? I've got the C. Okay, so you're not interested in voting in this? Not really. Well, not on trading 212 where I can't vote. <laughs> no, there's talk about that coming in or a little bit, but uh, okay, fair enough. So I, I thought I would um, not follow your lead, but go with a similar theme to you on this one. I thought I'd have some big tech as well, but I thought I'd have a go for Alibaba. Um, everyone else seems to be buying Alibaba. Charlie Munger's been buying it. Um, other big names like Paul Briscoe have been buying it. Uh, people seem to want to own this in their portfolio now and it's not hard to see why the stock's had a bit of a whack uh, recently it's a huge internet conglomerate in China lazily kind of characterised as Chinese Amazon the only reason I don't own this in my actual portfolio is I don't think I can work through um, the number of businesses they have and get a feel for what's going on for them well enough basically I love the look of their balance sheet I really like the idea of their business there's a big company there called Tencent who I like slightly more just from my very limited experiences of going to China and having seen WeChat be basically everywhere. Uh, WeChat being a um, Tencent company. Uh, but there's an awful lot going on in Alibaba. That's probably quite attractive to someone who knows what they're doing with this. But I don't know. Uh, I, I feel more confident making bets on America than I do on China. Um, and I feel like Alibaba is not attractive enough for me to want to buy it more than just buying more Amazon in this situation. But yeah. Alibaba, my second one. How about you? Barber, Barber takes effort, I think. It's a really difficult business to actually value. But my number two is um, Autodesk. So you may or may not have come across this um, piece of software before. It depends on what you do for a living, but... Autodesk is quite famous for making CAD essentially. Um, it's a, it's a well, it's a transition in recurring revenue business. It used to be a high ticket business. I see it very much in being in a similar vein to sort of the way Adobe was pre pre it switching to Creative Cloud. Um, so I think Autodesk is a pretty interesting software as we go into what we assume is going to be a good period for building and a good period for design. I think Autodesk should thrive over the next three years. Yeah, just a point. We are doing this for three years to try and keep up with Mr. Gardner. Um, so, yeah, that's Autodesk. It's ADSK is the ticker. Steve, what have you got in three? In three, I have decided to exploit the fact that uh, we're looking at a three-year sort of time mm. horizon. And I thought I would go for something that I think is going to grow quite a lot in the next three years. I thought I'd pick a nice utility because those those grow like absolute weeds. I thought, enough mm. of this tech nonsense. I'm going to try and beat the market using a utility. And I've gone for a utility called PG&E. 
Um, and I suspect most of our UK listeners have never heard of this. Basically, this is a utility company that successfully started a bunch of terrible, terrible forest fires in Southern California. Uh, a lot of people died as a result of their basic negligence. They entered bankruptcy protection. They um, have had a horrendous time and their stock is down accordingly. So why this company? I think the worst is behind them, basically. So they've been through an awful lot bankruptcy-wise correctly, uh, right? If you start a bunch of forest fires and people lose their lives and you're a utility company, you need to pay. Uh, but there is a forest fires widows fund that they'll be paying into. However, here's how to think about utilities if you're interested in them at a very basic level because who's not interested in utilities? Basically, how they work is this. You have um, a asset base um, which is a certain amount and a certain value and your regulator will allow you to make a certain percent return on that asset base so your return is a function of two things number one the size of that asset base and number two the amount your regulator allows and what we're expecting to see from uh, PG&E over the next few years is substantial substantial growth on that asset base basically at the moment their stock has been crushed because they look like a bankruptcy case that's fair um, but as that starts to come through into earnings and their, their asset base starts to grow at around 10% and their 10% return as well helps compound that, I'm expecting good things to happen for this company in the next three years or so. So I've decided to go for a utility and not just a bunch of tech things. Uh, let's see how that works out for me. Cool. So the third on my list is a, probably another interesting company that I have owned before. And I have told Steve how much I admire this business, but I just can't seem to hold on to it for a very long time. It's very overvalued, which would fit the sort of that aspect of the rule breaker uh, investing idea um, quite nicely. Um, it's probably on the cusp of a mega trend, um, perhaps. Um, but this company is a lab fit out company. They also do. Um, lab instrument supplies and they also have a biotech called sartorius steden um, the company itself is known as sartorius it's a german company um, it's a very exciting company i think it's nearing 30 billion now in market cap um, when i was buying it it had a price to earnings ratio of about a thousand <laughs> and uh, and it had and the reason being is it had scraped a profit one year it scraped a million pound profit or something like that so it was you know it was rightfully a, a ridiculous price to earnings ratio but i still think it's an interesting company i think as we move out of covid there'll be a lot of countries looking to expand their um expand their facilities essentially um i think there'll be a lot of people who realize that they were relying on other countries to develop vaccines uh, that they probably could have started work on themselves. So I think Sartorius is going to be a very interesting company moving forward. The caveat being that it's already bloody expensive. Uh, ticker, if anybody's interested, is SRT3. Actually, has a number in the ticker. That's nice. I do like a nice ticker with a number in it. Um, I haven't got one of these, but I've looked at Sartorius before, partly because you appear in my DMs and tell me about it, and then I click on it. And then I look at the price earnings ratio and then I click off it again, mainly. But uh, in much the same way that dividend investors like saying they're not just hunting down yields, value investors like saying they're not just looking at price earnings ratios. A thousand one probably means it's going to take quite a lot of work for me to understand this sort of thing. And therefore, I tend to leave it alone. And then by the time I get around to looking back at it again, you've normally sold it, usually for some money. Um, this is true. 
<laughs> okay, here's my fourth then for the moment. Uh, I've selected a stock from uh, the FTSE. Hooray! Uh, a nice UK stock here. I've selected a stock called Renishaw. Um, they are involved in things like 3D printing, manufacturing. They're Cathy Wood likes them. Uh, as I remember, they had a fairly absurd looking PE ratios um, to go with it. But this is uh, the company that I think might do well from the UK. People ask us, you're the playing FTSE show. Or at least today, anyway, the playing foot Steve show. You, you can edit that one in for me, thank you. Um, and uh, but wh why do you never talk about UK stocks? Why don't you like any UK stocks? Here's one in my uh, sampler that will carry the day for us. Uh, Renishaw features in the 3D printing ETF from Cathy Wood. I think it features in another one as well. Probably the space one. Why not? Um, uh, that's what I've got at number four. Okay. So my number four is an interesting one, I think. I think it'll probably shock a lot of people here. Um, my number four is uh, Scott's Miracle Grow. And I know there'll be a lot of people probably thinking, is he trying to beat the market with this company that sells fertilizer? But essentially, there's a lot of hidden stuff to Scott's Miracle Grow. And um, they're actually a really, really well-run, smart company. They make a lot of profit on their products. They've got really, really good distribution. But the little caveat, they, they have been slowly buying up all of the small hydroponics companies all across America. And they're slowly building up a really, really good base of um, basically this hydroponics software and hydroponics um, systems, which is used in uh, pretty primarily in the um, in growing cannabis. Um, so if you are looking for a cannabis player like, like I was for this and thinking... I don't know what any of these companies are. I don't know what any of these companies do. I don't know what most of these statements mean. But I think cannabis might be a big thing in the next three years. Then Scott's Miracle Grow is like the picks and shovels play because it's going to sell the fertilizer and it's going to sell the uh, the hydroponic system. So that's why I've picked it. Love it. You beat me to it on the idea of it as a picks and shovels play on cannabis. And this looks like a really nice idea for that kind of thing. Actually, I'm quite taken with that thought. Okay, here's my fifth then. I thought I'd go for something a bit newer, something a bit cooler, something that um, I don't use but think might be popular, and it's Roblox. Uh, so I've gone Cathy Wood again uh, at number five here. Pretty much everyone knows what Roblox is. It's a, uh, it's a computer game base. It's got a huge ecosystem. It seems to be one of these things that... One of David Gardner's um, principles, and this is kind of what led him to Peloton, I think, is things that people are incorrectly writing off as a fad, uh, in his view, anyway. I mean, he thinks that Peloton is being incorrectly uh, written off as a fad. I last week called it a closed airing company. Steve this week called it a closed airing company. We're the kind of idiots he's looking at here, basically. People who think Peloton, well, that was good fun while everyone was indoors, but now everyone's going outdoors again and people are going to either give these things away or sell them or recycle them or at any rate stop buying them. Uh, so I thought I'd go with Roblox. I see a little bit of a kind of perhaps fad label over this. Um, let's see if I'm right or not in thinking that there's a way of getting past that for them. Cool. So my fifth is a FTSE stock, which is a sort of a self-imposed rule um, that we really should have at least one FTSE stock. I say FTSE, it's actually an AIM stock and Boom. the company actually originates in... It actually originates in Israel, so I've kind of twisted all of the rules here a little bit. Um, but I have picked Tremor International, which is, again, a stock I've talked about on here. Um, 
we compared it to um, the American company Magnite, which is um, it's basically uh, an advertising platform for, for one of shortening the description. Um, Tremor International is a better version of Magnite that is growing faster and is more loved by its users and uh, is about half the price of Magnite, probably even less after the, the recent tech run-up. So Tremor is the one that I think will be my outlier. It'll either do very, very well or it'll do pretty poorly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, that's my five. That's your five. That's David Gardner's five. Um, what do you guys think? What five would you have for the next three years to try and beat the market with? Uh, do let us know in the comments down below. We'd be really interested to hear about those. Thank you to James Buller for asking us on this one. We had a great time thinking about this. We really enjoyed it, uh, putting together our own samplers, running through different ideas, uh, coming up with different suggestions and thoughts and thinking about how they might all fit together as a whole. But um, you can absolutely uh, have a look at our pies on Trading212. We'll make them available uh, on the social feature. Um, And let's see how we go in that case. I guess it's probably just time to finish with a quick question then. So uh, Mohammed M wrote in a couple of weeks ago now, we're just getting round to this one because we've had a few things here, asking uh, which UK sectors do you believe in over the next few years? And I guess in your case, Steve, since when you had to find a FTSE stock, you went digging and then you managed to resurface in Israel again. Uh, is that a sign that you're not so sure about sectors <laughs> for the UK here? I'm not a big believer in the uk um as a whole really um but there are sectors in the uk that i am happy to invest in um for example the uk stock i hold is legal in general because i think it's a fantastic uh, life insurance slash pension business essentially um probably investment business you'd be fair to call that with a range of etfs that have come out as well um but in general, I think the UK financial sector is pretty strong, and that's an area that I would consider investing in. Um, I think the banks look pretty good. I was I was reading um, I was reading about HSBC only the other day, and that they're selling off quite a lot of their unprofitable arms. They're trying to stick to their UK arm. They're a little bit in America, and they're trying to focus pretty much far east which is where they really really do drive the profit home so hsbc looks like that could be an interesting bank at the moment barclays is a very very good functioning bank with a very good set of analysts if you ever look at um barclays price targets they tend to be the most accurate they tend to come up top of all of those lists lloyd's bank no <laughs> um aviva also perhaps no but legal in general looks looks it looks great at these pricing now you're probably getting a six percent yield you've got a company who is striving to improve their eps beyond their increase in dividend which is uh, you know really admirable and they're taking the right steps to do it by you know they're very saturated in the uk they're not going to do much more growing there so they're starting to branch out into america they're starting to look at pension risk transfer out in america which should be a really good um angle of growth for them so yeah legal in general i think hsbc second financial sector in general is very interesting at the moment outside of that i like associated british foods i think primark is a very good business um i would be pretty interested uh, i feel like i've just stolen steve stock but um i think that is a business i would be pretty interested in because i think that's a, a very good sort of rebound stock 
No, you've not done that. What you've done is triggered me instead. Uh, Associated British Foods is something that I got into a proper tangle with uh, when I was just starting out investing. I quite liked the idea of Associated British Foods. I mean, beyond Primark, actually, I do think Primark's a good business. Um, but they make up quite a lot of your shopping basket by what you use. When you start out investing, that's a decent principle to go for. It doesn't become a bad principle later on. Just we all tend to overthink things. But I bought it and then uh, everything closed in the UK. And I thought, oh dear, that's the end for Associated British Foods. And I sold it at exactly the wrong time uh, for a fairly substantial loss. So I could go and put it into, I think I'd probably put it into Netflix, actually, uh, at the time. But this was, yeah, that's another one of my sort of manifold early career mistakes. Uh, I say early career, like I've had anything that might be classified as a career in any meaningful sense. But uh, legal in general, of course, also get a discount on your life insurance uh, when you uh, become a shareholder there as well. Uh, Nice benefit to that as well as... As well as a good dividend, uh, I think you and I both own it. Paul owns it as well, I believe. A lot of people on the Briscord where we chat, um, if you'd like to come and chat with us, come and join the Briscord. Very happy to see you all there. Uh, why you would want to come and chat to us is beyond me. But if you think that's something you'd like to do, by all means, come find us. Um, I didn't go for financials when I was thinking about this kind of thing. I also, like you, found it quite a tricky sort of question to try and tackle. Um, which means it's a good a good question, right? Because it's not obvious and it's not easy. And I think the reason I found it tricky is because in general, I don't think in terms of sectors particularly well. When I try and think about sectors and what uh, when I think about sectors doing well rather than individual companies in particular, I tend to think, well, what moves a sector is some sort of macroeconomic thing. So inflation uh, and growth, basically, or GDP growth, more or less. And when both of those two are high, certain things do well, like energy, uh, and tech and when they're both low things do well like REITs and utilities and when one's high and one's low mm. different things do well accordingly so trying to tell you what sectors I think do well would involve making a kind of macro bet that I'm not too sure about uh, so I thought what I would do for trying to find an answer to this and that's not by the way uh, bearishness about the UK I wouldn't like doing this about the US either where I own quite a few things so I quite like a lot of uh, US companies I quite like their financials I quite like um industrials over there as well there's quite a few companies there that i like the look of i was talking about landstar the other week um i like graco i like quite a few of those industrials but i wouldn't want to buy the sector in any interesting way i feel like if i bought a sort of sector-based etf it would mainly be full of stuff that i don't really want and there would be some stuff that i do but i would just rather buy the stuff that i like outright in that sort of situation So having avoided uh, Mohammed's question for about three minutes there or so, here's my best stab at an answer. If I was buying a sector from the UK for the next few years and I was also allowed to help myself to Steve's FTSE AIM stuff, I would buy basic materials. Um, And I would buy that because I think there might be a few bits that would be quite nice in there. So there's things that... um, Steve Elsewhere has talked about quite a lot, so I'm just going to sort of shamelessly rip off his work here for a moment and talk about things like uh, Pan-African minerals and bush, uh, Pan-African resources, sorry, Bushveld minerals, Greatland Gold. Um, all three of those have been down a little bit lately, actually. The FTSE just had a little bit of a wobble today, so they might be worth looking at. Uh, Paul is very fond of Rio Tinto. I can see why. Um, that's one that I looked at at a much, much, much lower price than it is now. Decided against it, and I think that was probably a bad decision for me. Uh, so one nil to pull on that one. Um, I think that also pays a fairly solid dividend if that's your kind of thing. Um, Big dividend, yeah. I seem to remember being six or seven percent, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Really? That would be quite nice if you're a dividend investor mm-hmm. or if you're particularly looking to generate an income stream from your investing. Uh, and there's plenty more actually on there. There's a couple of interesting kind of copper mining companies out there. 
Uh, I would have a look at basic materials if I was taking a sector bet. I find it hard to sort of work out sector bets, which makes it an interesting question to think about. But if I was going somewhere, um, that's pretty much where I think I would look. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, to add to that, we've got sort of Antofagasta. Um, that, the, the best thing about basic materials is it seems to attract some really, really good companies that have absolutely nothing to do with the UK. <laughs> so Antofagasta is a Chilean copy, a copper miner, I think, off the top of my head. Um, we've got Sylvania Platinum, um, which is a you know very, very good company. Obviously, we've got Rio Tinto, which for whatever reason chose to list in the UK despite being Australian. And then we've got the little companies like Eurasia Mining, we've got Greatland Gold, we've got Pan African, we've got Bushfeld, which is a very interesting player on alternative storage of energy um, and um, vanadium in general, which is used to strengthen steel, which when you're thinking about things like HS2 and what have you, we will go through quite a lot of steel. Um, all really interesting little mining sectors. So yeah, I like that as an idea. Um, I think I'd be, I think I'd be on board with that financials and basic materials it sounds like the most boring thing we'll ever put forward but it's what the uk is good at yeah i mean it's it's a case where i think boring investing and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with boring investing i mean i was saying earlier look the point of investing is you buy it and then you don't look at it for ages and people will need this stuff um that's where i think we kind of feel most comfortable i mean i didn't particularly choose basic materials because i thought i could cheat and smuggle foreign companies in uh, but it did occur to me that I know we don't mine much copper out of the UK uh, by digging into land mm. around sort of uh, Scotland or somewhere like that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, uh, basic materials and financials. Those are our kind of uh, sector picks. If you'd like to know Paul's, then uh, absolutely bother him on the Discord and he'll be very happy to discuss those with you, I am sure. Uh, I guess we should probably draw a line under things there. I, I'm having such a nice time chatting with Steve uh, without Paul around this time, but time is running on from us a little bit. Do you think we should do a bonus very quick? We've entered the fin twit on Twitter. What were your three picks, Steve? This yes, uh, we should do that. We've uh, entered the Lucton Capital fin twit contest for Q3. So neither of us is a trader, or none of us claims to know much about trading. But we're not above entering a nice trading competition. Just pick three stocks that will go up uh, in the next quarter. I've decided to just swing wildly and randomly because I ran out of time this week. Um, and I might be an interesting uh, test case for whether actually trying to pick stocks does better than swinging in the dark a little bit. But I've gone for Coinbase. I've gone for Roblox. And I've gone for IPOing today, Didi. Oh, Didi's had a terrible first day, so that's a good yeah, start. Yeah, it has. Um, I've gone for... I've gone... Well, if I win it, it'll be amazing because I too forgot about it and got a no notification this morning that I still hadn't submitted. Uh, so I've picked <laughs> Uruguayan Fintech, D-Local, ticker DLO. Um, it's actually really impressive growth, good metrics. It's not cheap, though. Uh, I picked Doximity, which is uh, DOCS. It's a social media platform for doctors. <laughs> um, it has built-in telemed. Um, it reckons in its... Because uh, it's just recently IPO'd last week. It reckons it did five times more teleconferences than Teladoc last year. Um, it's actually already profitable. It's already generating free cash flow, 88% gross margins, because it's basically advertising, Bristol Myers Squibb advertising direct to doctors. Um, apparently, they've got 80% of US doctors already signed up, so it's quite hard to see where they'll go from there. But let's see. Uh, my third one was Nanox, which I think we've talked to death on here. And the risk calculator out last week, we probably talked it to bits. But um, I think we're expecting multi-source um, and FDA news uh, in this quarter. 
So I am hoping that DLO, Doximity, and Nanox uh, win it for me. Yep, so if you like trading, that's the thing to do. Try and think about things that have catalysts coming up, like uh, Nanox's FDA thing. I'm rubbish at this, which is why I'm not much of a trader, uh, basically. But yes, uh, that's us. Um, Three bonus stocks for you. If you're still with us, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Do leave us a review. Do leave us a rating. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, YouTube, Google Podcasts, probably somewhere else that I've forgotten, but I'm not Paul, so I don't do this every week. Um, and if you like the fact that Paul's not here, don't tell him. He'll be upset. If you don't like the fact that Paul's not here this week, write down below and ask for him to come back, and he'll be back next time. Um, but meanwhile, thank you very much for listening, and good night. I'm amazed how many people own stocks. I'm amazed how many people own stocks. The sucker's going up.